Hello and welcome to the Social Work Beginnings podcast. Social Work Beginnings is a student-hosted podcast engaging with instructors, agencies, and members of the social work community in Canada. As we strive to learn to become effective social workers at the beginning of our careers, we seek to amplify the ongoing work to advance social justice in Canada within social work. This podcast is born out of a desire to equitably increase the accessibility of opportunity to learn outside the classroom about our diverse field. Our guest today is the University of Regina's eighth president, President Jeff Keshen. Dr. Keshen assumed the role of president and vice chancellor on July 1st, 2021, following an almost year-long rigorous national search process. Dr. Keshen holds a doctoral degree from York University with a research concentration in the history of war and conflict. He was the recipient of the Government of Ontario June Callwood Award for outstanding service in volunteerism for success with the establishment of the University of Ottawa's Experiential Learning Service. Dr. Keshen is the author of five books, more than 25 scholarly articles, and has edited 11 books. Dr. Keshen lives in Regina with his wife and his two children. Thank you for joining us today, President Keshe. Thanks so much. We had the opportunity to talk about Social Work Week coming up here. And as you know, the Faculty of Social Work lets in a new cohort of students around this time. What would you say to those new students in terms of joining the University of Regina in the Social Work program? Well, the first thing I would say is they have a really bright future, tremendous opportunities. We hear from government all the time about how there are shortages of social workers in all fields across the province. So that's that's part of it. I think that as well, there's the obvious ones about as they enter the university. My um, advice is always as a, uh, as a professor and as a teacher and also as a parent is, mm. um, you know, uh, balance your, um, try to do a little bit each day. Mm. Come to class. Yeah. Um, don't put off stuff. Don't procrastinate. Those are the obvious ones. But also, I think that you're entering a field which is very special. It mm. is it meets a variety of social needs, many of them very desperate social needs. Mm. You're going to be dealing with very challenging situations for all things like addictions and child welfare and sometimes the more unpleasant aspects of society. However, you'll be helping people with great need and people sometimes with um with maybe not as much need, but still consider that they really would benefit from social worker. And what I mean by that is uh, parents will use social workers to help them deal with difficult situations. We did as well yeah. as parents. Mm. Uh, I found uh, the social workers to be tremendous assets in helping mm. us deal with um, with uh, challenges for our, our own children, which were very small when you think about it in the grand scheme mm. of things, but they're behavioral issues. And sure. there's so many, so many programs that social workers can yeah. can help with. And um, I would just say that I'm hugely admiring of the, of the field. You're amazing professionals. And mm. I think that you contribute to society and just, and, and folks who are really going through very difficult, difficult cases, difficult circumstances. Absolutely. And you touched on the fact that it's a professional program. And so I guess in terms of, you know, just the universe of R as a whole, under your leadership, there's been a focus on that experiential learning that social work has a long history of in-person practicums, both in a mini, which is a part-time practicum, and then a full-time that as students were going to be finishing. Tell us a bit more about that focus, though, as a university on giving students that experiential learning. 
So I'm from the arts myself. Um, I'm a historian and social work, nursing, business, um, all those areas and, and many others have practicums. And it's that experience within the community that not just enriches the student experience, but makes them far more career ready on, mm. on graduation. So the reason I mentioned it in the arts is that we talk about the arts as having transferable skills, communication skills, uh, writing skills, researching skills. And then many art students, history, uh, English, um, often will have difficulty getting that first job because they're not specialized. The impetus when I got involved in experiential learning back in the day when I was at Ottawa U as an historian was connecting students to do volunteer work on mm -hmm. research is to get not just students appreciative of the skills that they can bring in the way that they can apply them to a variety of different organizations and companies and all types of employment opportunities, but to get those employers a look at the art students because um, they were often glossed over when it came time for they graduating when they're applying for jobs because we know that the best job interview is the one that you people see you performing the job in mm, place. Yeah. So I always you know thought about the fact that experiential learning, which is intrinsic to social work, intrinsic to so many areas, had to be instilled within all parts of the university so students recognize the applicability and the wide applicability of the skills that they were carrying to enrich their uh, educational experience by giving themselves that sort of experience that sort of that that experience outside of the classroom which is a lot of fun often doing work in relation to your courses and getting credit for it and having employers look at them in their ability to apply their their skills in, in a workplace setting. So that was how I became involved in it. And it was really to expand the things that we already saw in many faculties, in many disciplines, many professional programs to the entire university. Mm. And I think our students will benefit from that. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about your kind of background as a historian and, you know, we're going to put it in the podcast notes, but I was able to take a look at some of the just the books that you've edited in regards to social welfare and policy. And so I think, you know, for many of us in social work, we actually take policy classes and it's sometimes an underrepresented part of social work. People think of the work part of the profession, perhaps at a micro kind of individual person to person scale, but policy has such a huge effect on social work and so many of the intersections of what we do. Where did that interest for you come from as a part of history to focus on social welfare in Canada? I've edited books on social welfare. My actual focus, and I'm going to connect the two, is on war and society. Isn't it interesting that much of the social policy in this country, so any social policy has its roots in, say, 19th century social gospel, church, state eventually took a lot of that activity over. Mm. And um, a lot of that was done locally, like health policy was done locally, it was entirely inadequate to meet the situation, for example, of the first pandemic after the First World War. Yes. Um, unemployment could not be done by city-run operations where they had digging ditches, making roads, things of that nature by pick and shovel. So this is the way it was done. It was relief work temporarily, and people would be provided with the very basics. It's fascinating under times of crisis where policy is out of necessity teleported forward. Uh, the major changes in social policy and where myself and many colleagues became involved in it, it the birth of our modern social welfare state from everything from family allowances to unemployment insurance to um, university education that was provided free 
comes out of the Second World War mm. in the 1940s. It comes out of why? It's because out of the Depression, uh, people did not want to go back. Their government knew that it needed more powers to do that. It got those powers in in wartime. And people remembered what happened after the First World War, mm. where government basically returned to these status quo antebellum, and there was a steep post-war downturn. It wasn't going to happen again. So social policy, the intersections of my of my work in war and society, comes out of that time of crisis where government finally does step up and takes more responsibility because mm. the public was demanding it at that particular Time. The same thing happened in England with the Beveridge Report in 1942. Marsh Report follows in Canada in 43. So the birth of our social welfare system. So that's how I became interested in it. Um, and then you, of course, trace the roots, which are not in state, but by other agencies, which took which took uh, the charge of social policy, which would have been in earlier years, some local governments on a happenstance basis, and the church, which eventually has to come into the area of social gospel, because in the time of industrialization, people were looking at the faith and thinking, um, it's not sustaining us. So the church had to face a crisis itself about Mm. how is it going to show its relevance? You don't endure your lot in this life to get your reward in the next. You said in the here and now, the social gospel about building the kingdom of heaven on earth. And that's Mm -hmm. was in time and place of industrialization, which takes place, which makes the the challenge of social policy going forward. Should it be only times of crisis that brings us forward Mm -hmm. um, to sort of a new paradigm? And I don't think we're there at that point anymore. Too much has happened, but there's still some of that, um, some of that, I think of that, of that uh, dynamic, if you will. Sure. So that's where it comes from. If you're, if your folks are, are yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I flagged a couple excerpts that I think our, you know, listeners will find interesting. And I'm going to read briefly here. You were writing specifically about veterans when mm-hmm. you said here in 1918, the National Conference on Canadian Universities had proposed a modest loan grant program to help veterans enter essentially the academe. But Prime Minister Robert Borden rejected it as too expensive, which is what you, I think, were alluding to in World War One. But then you then contrast this with recounting the time during and after the Second World War, if I'm following what you said earlier, where Ottawa then invested in 53,000 or so veterans. What I found interesting is you make the point that it was specifically to provide them the opportunity to receive undergraduate education and beyond. And so with that in mind, you have such a clear historical depth that many of us won't have yet and at this stage in our undergrad with in regards to policy. So with that type of excerpt in mind, what does this Canadian history say about government and investment in education? And, and how do you see that in terms of like a modern lens that we social workers engage with both as students, but then ultimately engaging in policy in our workplaces in the future? So just on, on the other point, it is interesting that those who made the policies for veterans in the Second World War including the free university education, one year for every year of military service, vocational training, which was woefully inadequate after the First World War. But it was a step forward because the government never been involved in that uh, Veterans Land uh, Act in the Second World War, which was far more generous than the First World War. All those folks who made that policy were veterans of the First World War, who saw the inadequacies of the policies that were implemented and the disillusionment that happened with veterans Mm. and the fact that they even became, in some circumstances, a threat to this to constitute authority. Many vets were on the streets with Winnipeg strikers and the great general strike of 1919 and the Great War Veterans Association 
had made many had made many resolutions which were highly critical of government. So it was the architects who were of uh, who were First World War veterans who saw the policy. I think that um, in this day and age, uh, with investments in education, the education we can speak about it is certainly providing the the basis of innovation in our society, the basis of a citizenry that uh, doesn't fall prey to conspiracy theories. Mm. There's a lot of value added, and, it, and we have to show the value added of higher education. Um, we also, I think, have a responsibility within education. And I know that there's a, a to and fro upon this in the political level and also the autonomy of institutions. Um, do we have that responsibility to ensure that our graduates, such as in professional programs, are connecting to the opportunities in our economy? Now, many will say that, of course, the, the university is more than, than that. It is about it is about education to bring people to a more broader and more nuanced and more sophisticated way of thought in our society benefits from that as a whole. And absolutely, that's the case. I think it's also a balance is also about knowing that a lot of our students come here to ensure that they have that opportunity. I do believe that the challenge going forward for us and also for those who fund uh, our education system, it will be, what will it look like uh, if we're speaking broadly? And I don't know if we're answering your question adequately, but I do believe that our, our student body and, and those who would like to take uh, higher education, adult learners, people in communities across the province internationally, I believe that they have different expectations of what, how we're going to respond to them. For example, the social work program has a provincial mandate. If we back it up 10 years, we would not be having half our courses online remote in social work because mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're responding to a challenge in the education system where people, for economic reasons, for work-life balance reasons, they might have families, or just because we have the responsibility also of, being, of opening up our opportunities across the province, we have to deliver education differently. And what we showed during the pandemic is that is possible. Mm. Um, so in terms of investments and, and working with the government on this, I do believe we have to be thinking about because if we don't do it, others will. Mm. Um, we have to be thinking about how do we, what modalities and how do we deliver that education in a way that better serves the entire a gamut of potential clients and people who want education. When I also say clients, what I also mean by that is people are taking degrees differently now. Micro-credentials are not a new thing, but more people are wanting them. Sometimes it's to upskill from a particular job that people are doing. Sometimes it's to start and then to stack your different qualifications up to credits and you build towards degrees. So I think that that is going to be the future of what we want to say is what's the next stage in mm -hmm. how we're going to be educating people. And I think working with public, you know, with our public funders sure. and uh, working with others who want to uh, support education, that I think is, is is where I think we have great hope, great opportunity. But it's also going to take uh, investments um, because providing the infrastructure to do that, providing high quality online courses, that all requires uh, a significant investment. So I think that that's going to be the one where we're going to have to work with our, our province, yes. uh, work with our provincial government, work with federal opportunities, because internationally, we're seeing a lot of undertaking that challenge. We don't want to be left behind. Absolutely. And you started to talk about hope there. And so that follows well into kind of the next question. And I'm going to quote you, and I believe your fellow editor writing together here. 
Uh, you said that it has been clear in the past, however, that Canada's social policy has been a reflection of the ideology and philosophy of the times. And so, as you maybe reflect on perhaps a new normal that people are striving for in a world changed by COVID, and I think earlier you kind of pointed to the fact that it's not quite the same effect as a world war, but it has had a profound effect on society. What gives you hope, both professionally at the University of Regina, but then you mentioned earlier, but and personally as a as a husband, as a as a father, as a historian, what gives you hope in moments like now? Um, I think that what gives me hope is that we've shown the ability to respond as as an organization, not just the University of Regina, but across the post secondary sector to an extraordinary circumstance where we still imperfect as it was and as difficult as it was and disillusioning sometimes for those who were taking classes in their basements and not interacting. We showed our ability to respond and to continue and to offer education. So that gives me hope that given what the uh, uh, demands are and given where we see opportunities to be able to connect with students who otherwise would not even consider post-secondary mm. education, who could not afford to move out of their communities. Right. There will always be a lot of folks who will want to come here and have that experience on site, but it gives us opportunities to expand our reach, but also it makes it far more viable for people to stay in their communities, work in their communities, uh, contribute to their communities across the province and not have to leave. And then and those mm. communities will also you know, yes. lose those folks as well. Uh, I always think that it's important. There's always going to be difficulties, no matter any circumstances, always going to be challenges. My word, whatever, this is the profession that that faces them. But I think that if we show that we're trying to work hard to respond to those opportunities, it gives us great it gives us great hope that we're moving forward. The other thing I would say to social workers that are um, entering the profession is um, for them also to know and to remind themselves always that they're doing very important and noble and work that is helping to save people from very difficult and sometimes tragic circumstances to give them hope in the depth of really despair and for them to know that they need to take care of themselves as well, Mm. because you're going to be dealing with a lot of very difficult and heavy and traumatic situations. So please also be prepared for yourself Mm. to be able to take it and to always have hope and to remind yourself that the amount of the difficulties that you're seeing and the amount of the tragedies you're seeing, you are providing hope for people who sometimes feel that the situation is hopeless Despair, I don't think, is ever the option that we want Mm. to go to. That's such a lovely way to end, but uh, I think it would be important to ask, is there anything else you'd like to share with the students that are listening or perhaps for the many professionals that are tuning in that are in the throes of their career? Anything else you'd like to leave them with? Um, I would like to leave them with this. Even though I mentioned you're entering program and a career that is desperately needed. And I hope that you'll all remind yourselves of the wide number of people that you really help. And um, as I said before, it's not only those who are in crisis, it's those who need advice. And your profession provides that advice, including for us as well. Mm. I think you just are tremendous, tremendous profession and tremendous people for going into it. Well, thank you for your time today, President Cashman. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Regina Faculty of Social Work. 
go to www.urugina.ca forward slash social work to find out more about the program. The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors.